0: Well, welcome to the Ramsey Centre and the second episode of Professor John Fitzgerald's fascinating talk on trust in a time of pandemic.
1: Producing the video blog Think Different is just one of many roles that Dr Ding Yifan performs in People's China. He's the Deputy Director of an institute at a China State Council, the highest executive arm of People's State. He's Vice Chairman of the Learned Society, based in the party's central think tank, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And, as noted, he's a member of the Chinese People's Institute of Foreign Affairs, which was set up in 1949, and I quote, to enhance friendship between the Chinese people and the people of other nations, something he's admirably setting out to do with his video blog. This association specifically cultivates relations with political and business elites of other countries. In years past, Dr. Ding also served as Paris correspondent for a newspaper that was known to be a front for agents of China's Ministry of State Security, an intelligence agency. On this evidence, I'd submit that Dr. Ding spins approved civilizational yarns on behalf of the Communist Party, and that he's obliged to do so as an operatic or cadre who enjoys special privileges denied to ordinary citizens in China. He falls at the extreme end of a spectrum of people currently spinning civilizational yarns around the challenges of the coronavirus. Some are marginally more plausible than others, but they're coming out of Europe, North America, and Australia. Let me just cite one of them. Dr. Ian Inkster, professor of international history at Nottingham Trent University, published an opinion piece in which he said, and I quote, The coronavirus, COVID-19, is a tough test that's turned the world into a gigantic laboratory in which to compare cultures and societies. He goes on to draw sweeping conclusions about the differences between civilizations, East and West, bearing on national responses to the pandemic. But his conclusions, similar to Dr. Dean's, no quote, keeping the truly vulnerable alive while ensuring larger numbers of people who catch the virus recover, is a sign of clear and humane priorities and coherent reactions among millions of people. It seems the East Asia economies have been doing this far better than the Western nations that embrace the greatest economic freedoms and enjoy the largest resources in the world. Now, Dr. Ingster's claims have some merit in going beyond comparing one country, China, with the 70 or so others that make up the West. This is the standard reference point, I should note, for commentators in China who pick and choose among Western countries in drawing their comparisons without regard to standard sampling techniques. Still, the finding of Dr. Insta's thought experiment, although more plausible at first glance, hold up to scrutiny no better than the outlandish claims of Dr. Ding. If civilizations do matter in an increasingly interactive global society, then we need to be able to call out the illusions among them. Resorting to civilizational arguments whenever a serious challenge arises across this east-west divide, risks overlooking some of the larger civilizational challenges that bridge it, including challenges to freedom of religion, speech and assembly. We also need to be careful in framing the history of civilizations, for reducing current developments in our region or the world to arguments about Ancient civilizations, cultures, and histories risks obscuring developments in other times and places that are possibly more illuminating than civilizational comparisons. Comparative political scientist Stein Ringen argues that China operates as a totalitarian dictatorship under an expanding Communist Party state. In this case, wouldn't the Soviet Union be a more fruitful point of comparison than China's own civilizational heritage? And if China's totalitarian impulses were to trend towards ethnic nationalism, and that's not out of the question, wouldn't the history of National Socialism in mid-20th century Europe serve as a more appropriate point of reference than a point selected at random from Chinese legend or a period history? Today, legions of patriotic Chinese youth are looking on and applauding as the current administration in Beijing makes outcasts of national minorities if we were to ask what this particular conjunction of ethnic cleansing and organized patriotic youth brings to mind i doubt that images of emperor Yu taming the waters would spring to mind or historical parallels with the sages roaming the warring states in the service of the duke of job other more recent historical comparisons probably suffice and yet The idea that Confucian civilization is thriving in Xi Jinping's China is taking hold in China and the West. What's behind this illusion? For the party, the incentive is clear enough. It wants to mask its historical origins in utopian socialism and Leninist political strategy, both of them grounded in European soil, and don the garb of a great indigenous civilization, seem to serve the purpose. It may be a tough ask persuading people in China after the party eviscerated what little remained of Confucian China in the 20th century and installed Marxism Leninism in its place, but we can't blame the party for trying. Compared with persuading people in China, persuading political and business elites in the West that the party is an avatar of Confucius seems to be a relatively straightforward matter. Foreigners, and particularly those who know little better and conduct profitable businesses in China, are fair prey for the party's civilizational misinformation campaigns conducted through Dr. Ding's Chinese People's Institute and a number of other agencies, created specifically to cultivate relations with opinion makers in foreign countries. We could cite many instances of this in Australia, Europe and North America illustrating the party's success in cultivating business elites and retired politicians to speak out about China's history and civilization on the party's behalf. The most recent to attract international attention is former senior partner with McKinsey, Peter Walker, author of a new book that sets out to correct American misperceptions that he feels gets in the way of understanding China as it really is. It all boils down, Mr. Walker tells us, to civilizational differences, differences in culture and history. If only Americans understood China as well as he, problems would be resolved. His book about overcoming the misperceptions of differences between China and America has been promoted on communist party media platforms in China and elsewhere, but mainstream American media remains skeptical. Asked on Fox News to explain how China's culture and history could Possibly account for the incarceration of one million Uyghurs in Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Mr. Walker pointed out that while he personally disapproved of Beijing's actions, he understood they are a reflection of the civilizational values that distinguish China from the United States and the West. Quote, Americans might regard every human life as sacred, he said, but people in China are just not wired that way. Where have we heard before that before? In fact, wasn't it Dr. Ding who said the sanctity of human life was a feature of China's civilizational heritage, distinguishing it from the West, and that it's Westerners who are not wired to value human life? Mr. Walker was not an attentive student. Pressed by the interviewer to explain mass incarcerations of a particular ethnic minority in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, Walker went on to say, it all goes back to Confucian values. So Confucianism has a lot to answer for. Or does it? No, it doesn't. It's not Confucianism. It's the Communist Party that has a lot to answer for. The notion that Chinese communists are legitimate heirs of an ancient civilization, heirs of Confucius, is an illusion projected out and about to gullible but well-connected foreigners through an old-style Leninist propaganda campaign, a successful propaganda campaign. This is Leninism 101.
0: Mm, I see. Mm, That's okay. Thank you. That's interesting. Uh, You also made a very interesting point um, in what we just heard that something called the West can sometimes be a standard reference point for commentators in China who are free to pick and choose at will among a great many kind of nominally Western countries, which covers a lot of ground, I mean, Western Europe, North America, Australasia, et cetera, et cetera. They can choose as they wish among all of those if they want to then make wide and critical generalisations about something called the West. So just, can I just invite you to talk a little bit more about what the West means to most Chinese people?
1: Well, the term West is a kind of civilizational claim, and it's thrown out there without any close definition. But it boils down to two or three things. One is the contrast is always between China and the West, not the East and the West. Why is that? Because people in China recognise that the East is a vast and diverse place. Everything from Afghanistan through India, through Southeast Asia, through Japan, including China. And throwing that all together as the East. Um, is, is difficult for people in China as they acknowledge the differences. Whereas looking out to the West, it all looks the same. Everything from Finland to Latin America you know, is all part mm-hmm. of the West. And there's a failure to extend to the West the courtesy that China extends to the East of recognising that diversity. But the second point, I suppose, is this, <clears throat> that in in terms of values and political systems, much of the East is the West. I mean, when China talks about civilizations, it's actually referring to political ideology and systems. Mm. That's what it comes down to. And the Communist Party is the inheritor of a great tradition of authoritarian rule, that justifies it. But if it looks around the rest of the East, it finds India, much of Southeast Asia, Japan, South Korea, all the major players are actually liberal democracies professing the kinds of values that it attributes to the West. Mm. In fact, it's China that's the standout that doesn't practice these, doesn't believe these or profess these values as a state, Mm. and doesn't implement them as a government. And so there's a a tendency in China, they say, there's China, and there's the West, to ignore the differences within the West, to acknowledge those within the East, then try to play down the fact that much of the East is like the West, Mm. in its beliefs and political systems. Mm. And that's the sort of dilemma that China's in when it talks about the difference between China and the West and alive any reference to the East.
0: So just following on from that a little bit, um, John, you you raise a a most interesting comparison with between China and mid 20th century Europe in what you just said. Um, And I'm just wondering if I can ask you a question about what sort of comparison question, not so much with Europe, but with earlier phases in the long and rich history of China itself. And what I'm getting at is, are there any analogues from the Chinese past to the kind of dominance that's been established in China since the war, since Mao Zedong, by the party, that kind of dominance? Or is this a totally unprecedented phenomenon in Chinese history? And in that, if if you don't mind a sort of double question, in that context, can you talk a little bit about Chinese attitudes to Western incursions? Western and other incursions in the 19th and 20th centuries, how much and how fairly do these actually colour the Chinese nationalist attitudes that you're talking about today?
1: Sure, Simon. Um, Just remind me, if I forget the second question, but in response to the first, many, should I call them, Western apologists point out that China has a long tradition of authoritarian bureaucratic rule. It's always had a bureaucratic class that runs the place. What's the difference? Mm. Well, here's the difference. Mm. The bureaucratic class that ran the old empire amounted to about 20,000 imperial officials. Mm. The Communist Party state runs to anywhere between 10 and 20 million Communist Party officials. The imperial state didn't station officials at the village level but at anything below county, which is to say any place where people, where the majority of people lived, such as villages, townships, neighbourhoods, there were no officials whatsoever. Now there's a party cadre in every village, in every hamlet. That's a big difference. Mm. It means that, whereas in, say, traditional or imperial China, organised society managed itself, now the Communist Party substitutes for organised society and there is no society outside of it. So in a sense, well, we can see a parallel between a kind of bureaucratic rule in the imperial times and a kind of bureaucratic rule now. The difference is that China has, in effect, become the Communist Party. It's lost that separate, organised society which used to sit outside the state. Mm. It is the state. There is nothing else. There's a bureaucrat in every village. Mm.
0: That's a significant Thank you. difference. Yes. Thank you, John. And and so so the other part of the question really was whether... Whether can you talk a little bit about Chinese attitudes to those Western incursions in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, and how much this colours uh, Chinese nationalist nationalism today? Well, my
1: Chinese friends, looking at sort of young patriotic youth firing off social message, uh, social media messages attacking the West or insisting that China invade Taiwan and so on, they tell me it reminds them of the. Boxer Uprising in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. So I must just say a few words about that. Mm. The the Boxer Uprising um, began in the late 1890s. It was anti-Western and anti-Christian. And it consisted of tens or hundreds of thousands of martial arts practitioners forming militia and going around attacking and raiding uh, missionary compounds, killing a great many uh, Chinese Christians and uh, attacking Western institutions and presence in China. In 1900, um, they extended their attacks into Beijing and occupied the foreign legations, which is technically occupied foreign soil within China. Now, the court supported that. The imperial court supported that. Um, For Westerners in China, it was a frightening experience. For China's transition to a world into a system of equal and sovereign nation states it was a great setback because China appeared not to recognize um, foreign presence on its own soil even in foreign sovereign territory. such as locations. <clears throat> um, but the Maoists like the court of its day still support this and still commemorate it. You'll find museums around China commemorating the massacres of Christians and Westerns, which are open to visitors today. Now That was a relatively minor current in Deng Xiaoping's time when people were looking out of China and to the West for models for China to follow. Now that China looks back on its own history for models, it ends up finding ones that we ought to consider dangerous, frankly.